Let's turn to, we were right, so I didn't intend this, but it's taken us, uh, what is it, taken us three weeks to get through Psalm 19? I didn't intend that, I apologize. But I did want to make sure that we didn't cut anything out. So we were in verse 9. We were just starting verse 9. Remember Psalm 19, first six verses? about God's revelation in creation. He declares and he displays his glory. In fact, the title of the, on top of your sheets, where to find God's glory. You can find God's glory in two places. You can find it in the creation, but even more intensely, you can find it in his word. So that's where you find God's glory, in the creation and in his word. And so uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how God's glory is displayed in all creation so that all people everywhere at all times under all circumstances have revelation from God crashing upon their existence. No one is without the knowledge of God, not one person. And we saw that the creation displays specific particular glories of God, and one of those was that God is a happy God, and the Son specifically displays that glory. Were you guys here during this, when we walked through the Psalms? You've, you've been, you see, you're the only two, and maybe you two. Were you here when we walked through the Psalms years ago? May, yeah, so just a few, a few people. So you're like, I've heard this before. Well, now you get to hear it again. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, just, yeah, exactly, just reading the manuscript. No, I don't do that. Um, and then in Psalm 19.7 and following, he's going to switch now and talk specifically about the Word of God. The glory of God revealed in the creation and now the glory of God revealed in His Word. And God's Word has attributes that align with God's attributes because it is His very Word. It's the, the breath of His mouth. And He's talking specifically, and this is a great question, I think Crystal asked it last week, is He talking specifically about the written Word? And that's exactly what He's talking about exclusively. When He's referring to the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, David is writing about... Moses's five books. That's those are the the letters. Those are those are the the, the books that he would have had in at access to. Those are the 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 texts that he is referring to. He is referring to the law of Moses. Those five books of Moses, and he's talking this way about the law of the Lord being perfect and sure and right and so on. He's talking that way about God's written word. God did speak audibly. Yes. And God does now presently lead through the Holy Spirit, but I would argue not apart from His Word. And here, David is talking explicitly and exclusively about the written Word. And as I even showed us last week, the written text in Israel's history is of central importance. They, it, was, it was crucial for God's leaders, Moses in particular, Joshua, Samuel, to write things down. And so it was always God's intention to have a book, to have a written text, to have a written word. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that that word is breathed out by God. It's his very breath. And these are similar things that David is saying here about God's written word. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. And for that reason, it can have and does have profound and life-changing, life-altering, soul-altering effect in a person's life. It revives the soul. It's perfect, no blemish whatsoever, so it revives the soul. And here we said that this word revive can also mean turn or bring about a turning so that it's probably suggesting repentance so that in, the, in, in God's word, because it is perfect, it brings about genuine repentance which ultimately revives the soul. There's nothing like repentance in terms of reviving the soul. There's nothing as good as a good, as a good conscience brought about by 
the Word of God, cleansing the soul. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. It's, it's reliable. It's certain. It's true. It explains the way things really are. So you can have someone who's a simple, this word here means, for simple means simple, naive youth. They don't know much. They don't have much experience. And yet because the Word of God is certain, because it's true, because it's reliable, it can give that simple person true wisdom. Okay? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This idea uh, has an idea of moral or ethical right, rightness, righteousness. Okay? And for that reason, it gives joy. When you know the way reality is and you know how to interact with people in a relationship and you know the way of right conduct, then and, and you can receive these words that direct you in a path that, that, will lead, that won't lead you astray, this will rejoice the heart. It's good to know the right way to go. And I mentioned even last week, people are being instructed in, in our culture down a particular wrong path and given wrong ethical instruction, and that kind of ethical instruction will not bring joy to the heart, ultimately. And I think I, I um, the, the graphic example I think I used was what's being encouraged uh, among the transgender, uh, among those who claim to be transgender, and what is being thrust upon them as being morally and ethically right in, in the, the path that they should choose. And it ultimately, as we've seen, it, that, those kinds of instructions, because they're not right, like the word of the Lord is, the law of the Lord is, will not rejoice the heart. In fact, they'll bring destruction and devastation upon a person's life. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and for that reason it enlightens the eyes. Pure, holy, clean, and therefore it enables you to understand the way things really are, brings conviction to your heart, gives you understanding. And this phrase, enlightening the eyes, this has to do... Um, or I should say, elsewhere in the Old Testament, this phrase is used to refer to a fine, a kind of physical refreshment. Here it's referring to a, a spiritual enlightenment, but when the eyes are made bright, that means that the whole person is healthy. And so when, the, when you have a pure commandment from the Lord, it not only revives you spiritually, but it also can have an effect on you physically. And you see this. You see this in the Proverbs talks about when you turn away from evil, it's refreshment to your bones. You see it in David in Psalm 32 that when he was unrepentant, it was devastating to his physical health. And so the word of the Lord not only has a, a, a spiritual health component, but it also will often at times bring about a physical health. Because when you're walking in a good conscience, when you're rejoicing in the Lord, when you know what's going on, when you walk in wisdom, it will can often bring about physical health. And that's not to say that all Christians will be physically healthy. That's not the point of Scripture or the New Testament. But it is to say that when you are, your, your spiritual health will have dramatic effects in your whole life. Okay? Verse 9 seems a little strange. You kind of wonder how it fits within the, the rest of the passage because he's talking about the law of the Lord, the Word of God, the written Word of God, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. And then he says, the fear of the Lord. You're like, huh? It, just, it seems a little unfitting. So why does David all of a sudden say, the fear of the Lord here? Anybody want to take a guess? An educated, sanctified guess? Why does he all of a sudden just switch, boom, fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is clean. 
You don't, if you don't want to, that's okay too. You don't have to. When you know his word, then you will fear him? I think so. I think what he's doing here is he's kind of bringing together both the word itself, so fear of the Lord can be kind of a stand-in maybe for, for the word itself, but also together at the same time, the response to the word. Okay? And the reason I think this is the case is because, for example, in Isaiah 66, 2, the one who truly fears the Lord is the one who trembles at his word. So if someone claims to, this is, this is why, you know, when we've talked about even in our relationship series, you know, what, what are some qualities I should look for? And there's really one that's essential is do they tremble at God's word or, or are they soft to the word of God? Because a person can talk all day long about how they love God and they serve God and they know God and they respect God and they fear God. But the only way that can be proven is how they respond to the Word of God. That's the only way. How does a person respond to the Word of God? Do they fear it? Do they tremble before it? Do they yield to it? Are they soft to it? And like I say in the relationship series, if you find someone like that, they could have a lot of other qualities that are not where you hope they would be. And guess what? Here's the hope. If they're soft to the Word of God, they can change. And they will change as they are confronted by the Word of God and the Word of God shapes and molds. But on the other hand, you could have someone who makes all kinds of claims and, and even is active at, in, in, at the church at some level and, and making all kinds of claims to godliness. But are they soft and sensitive to the Word of God? Do they... Is, is, the, is the Word of God creating a fear uh, uh, within them that react, rightly responds to God's Word? So I think that's what's happening here. He's kind of bringing together God, both the Word and the response to it. Um, and he says, the fear of the Lord is clean. This word here means cultically clean, meaning there is kind of a process you had to go through to be clean in order to worship in Israel. There's a process that the priests needed to go through. There's a process that people needed to go through after maybe they had touched a dead person or after a woman went through her menstrual cycle. There are things that you had to do in order to be clean in order to worship, right? And so this has the idea of purity, cleanliness, uh, the idea that the, uh, a right response to the Word of God holistically affects you and makes you clean. See, the, the cultic cleanliness in, the, uh, in Israel, it was only a picture of what Christ would eventually do. It couldn't really make you spiritually clean, could it? And no one really would have thought that. Even David in Psalm 51, he realizes, I mean, I need hyssop. I need the spiritual hyssop. I need something more than just outward uh, ritual here. But in Israel, that that cleanliness that was required of the priest or someone who had defiled themselves or made themselves unclean, that was a symbol of the holistic cleansing that a person needed in order to approach the living God. And he's saying here that the fear of the Lord is clean. In other words, a right response to God, namely to God's word, cleanses genuinely, okay? Cleanses holistically. And for that reason, it endures forever. Uh, God's word itself will endure forever, and a right response to God's word, namely fear of the Lord in his people, will endure forever. There's coming, there's coming a day when, 
where we are all glorified and we will walk in a, in a constant, holy, happy, joyful fear of the living God. Always at every moment responding perfectly to God and His Word. So it, he, His Word itself endures forever and that fear of the Lord endures forever in His people. So that's, that's an encouraging thing, I think. Uh, looking forward to the day when my heart will respond always, always, at every moment, perfectly to God and His Word. No sin. I long for that day. I trust you guys do as well. Okay, next phrase. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Okay, this word for rules, it can be ordinances as well. Maybe that's in your translation. It's a legal term. So if you read through the Old Testament, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, you know, that, those sections in there, even some parts of Numbers, there's a lot, lots of instructions, legal instructions, about what you should do in legal situations. What do you do if your ox gores your neighbor? What happens if two people are fighting and one person dies? What happens if two people are fighting or uh, what happens if you accidentally kill someone? These kinds of things. All these various kinds of laws that you needed within a theocracy. See, Israel was a theocracy, which meant that God himself ordered the society with his laws that he gave from his very mouth. And this word here, ordinances, is, it's a legal term and probably has reference to those specific legal requirements and legal orders within Israel to, to keep order in that society. And his point is here is that they are true. Now, the word true can mean that which corresponds with reality. You, you make a true statement, that statement uh, corresponds with reality. Um, yesterday, our children ate bagels for dinner. Two of them did. Um, well, it's a long story. But anyways, two of them had bagels. That's a true, that's a true statement. It corresponds with reality. All right? They actually did. I'm not making that up. Uh, so that word true can mean that, but it can also have a, a broader uh, meaning that, that's, that's rooted in that, but also means faithful or trustworthy or reliable or, let's see, what's another word? Um, reliability, permanence, continuity, faithfulness, and fidelity. Okay? And so here, probably what it's, it's saying is that these, these rules, they, they are good, they're wholesome, they're reliable. They, when it, for example, when it's dealing with justice situations in Israel, the, the punishment befits the crime. When it's talking about how to organize provision for those who don't have enough, the poor in Israel, those rules are righteous, they are right, they are true, they're trustworthy, they're reliable. And so I, that's what he's referring to. They're righteous altogether. And this is, this is holistic now. This is comprehensive, talking about God's word. They're not as one are... Um, I'm just going to read this uh, quote here. This is a great quote from one of the commentators that I think is helpful here. He says, quote, One of the most difficult aspects of pagan polytheistic religion in the ancient Near East was a lack of assurance about what the God or gods demanded. By contrast, our psalmist says, Yahweh, who is one and unopposed, has given his Torah, that's law, a sure judgment of what constitutes right human behavior. The term emet, which means uh, sure, carries a sense of reliability, permanence, continuity, faithfulness, and fidelity. 
They're not wishy-washy commandments subject to change at the divine whim, but secure and permanent statements of what ought to be. Okay? So when David is reflecting upon that, those writings that Moses wrote, that's how he sees them. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Before I get into verse 10, any questions about verses 7 through uh, 10, or 7 through 9, rather, describing both God's word, God's law, and the result that it has in the person's life? Okay, then let's move on then. Verse 10. It should go without saying then that if that is the case, if we really do have a word from the Creator that is utterly trustworthy, that has no blemish, that has no mistake or imperfection, that can make wise the, 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 the youngest, most inexperienced person, and they can, uh, someone without, who has very little education can be made wise, if this, is, this word rejoices the heart and if it's pure and it enlightens the eyes and they're true and, and so on, then verse 10 must be true. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So here's kind of a, a step up. He says, when we talked about parallelism, this is a, a parallelism where there's an increase from the, the first, first statement to the next. Much are they to be desired than gold, and then fine gold would have been even more valuable than gold. This fine gold would have been one that has been uh, purified of all um, um, impurities and defects. So even, you, you, have, you have gold, right? And then you have gold that's been refined and refined and refined and refined and refined and has now been designated as fine gold. And David's point is that this right here, I should say in his case, just these books right here, right there, are worth more than even the finest, most purest refined gold that you could locate. Uh, my son, Colton, loves to talk about gold and precious metals. I just, he, just, he wants to talk about it all the time, and he's reading about it, and he's looking the stuff up, and he wants to know how much this stuff costs, and how much an ounce costs, and a bar costs. And, and Am I right? I mean, he's, so he's always talking about gold. And one of the things that I try to do, and I think you do this too, is we were like, it, it's fine to talk about gold. In fact, the Bible assumes, and this is where you have to have a, a, a full understanding of what God has created in this world. The Bible assumes that there are things that have, it, that have an intrinsic value, that you should value at some level. It's okay to value gold. Gold is valuable. All right? that, in fact, that's the only way this argument works. Gold does have some value. So I don't want to just say to Colton, like, ah, forget it, that's materialistic, and you just need to stop talking about gold all the time. Well, maybe he does need to stop talking about it as much, but, <laughs> but, but I don't want to write it off as like, no, gold's worthless, and just focus on Jesus, right? Well, no, gold isn't worthless. That's, that's the point. It's not worthless at all. There's, there are things that are valuable in this world, intrinsically valuable, and you need to recognize that. Gold, gold is a, a, a valuable... It's a commodity, right? It's a commodity? It's not. A valuable commodity, and that's the only way that this argument works, right? Because the point is, is that recognizing gold and recognizing fine gold as valuable, sought-after uh, things, 
That being the case, God's word is even more valuable than that. More valuable. Those are valuable. That's, that's given. This is even more valuable than that. God's very words, the words of his mouth, the breath of his mouth, instructing us on who he is, how to know him, how to walk in a way that is pleasing, how to navigate life in a way that is wise, how to avoid trouble, right? More valuable than gold. So there's a value here, and then sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Again, you know, having kids, it's just these kinds of things just open up because, again, our kids, not only does Colton love gold, but Ellie loves sweets, right? Eats it on everything. Did she have it this morning on her oatmeal? She had it last night on her bagel. She did on her bagel last night. Yeah, she definitely, on, and that was the one that she ate. That was the side that she ate. She didn't eat all the one with the cream cheese. Uh, and so, you know, you don't go up to them and say, you know, quit asking for honey and, you know, and, and, and you, need to, you, need to, you need to love God more than honey. Well, of course it's true, but what does the scripture do? It recognizes that the honey is sweet. It's good. It's a gift from the Lord. It's sweet to the taste. You should enjoy it. But something is even sweeter than that, sweeter also than honey, in the drippings of the honeycomb is the Word of God. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to eat sweet things and to taste them and enjoy them, but we have something here even sweeter. And I think this sweetness... It is a fruit of regeneration. So that the taste of Scripture, that relish, that enjoyment, that, um, that, that taste of the sweetness of Scripture is, can only come to the person who has received a new heart. You need a whole new spiritual a set of spiritual faculties in order to taste the sweetness of the, the Word of God. So it's not for everyone. There are people, of course, you, you, you talk to them, you, you share the Word of God with them, they may be even be in the church and they find no relish in the Word of God. Well, if that's a long-term thing and it's never been the case, that you've, then it's hard to know whether or not you've experienced regeneration because this is something... Think of it, if, if we haven't been changed in the inside out to be in right relationship with God and to have a, a, a heart that is in right response to Him, how will the Word of God be sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb? So I do think this is a, a fruit of that change that God creates in us. And I think even for believers, this is a taste that needs to be continually uh, stoked. It's a taste that needs to be continually... Um, fed so that we're, we, we have a, a constant desire for, and, and, but it's also something that's going to be ebbing and flowing in our Christian life. There's going to be times when you, ha- you do, like the word is sweet. Yes, it's, it's super sweet. I'm really enjoying it. And there's going to be times when it's less so. And we try to fight through those times and navigate those times. But the point is, is overall for the, the believer, because they know verses 7 through 9 are true about the word of God, there will be a sweetness to it. Verse 11, moral, there will not only be a, a, a value to them, but a, a, a pleasure to them, but also a helpful means of warning. More of them by, your, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the Word of God 
actually keeps you from things that are bad. And that, that's just a basic truth about Scripture. That's not the only truth. That's not the only reason why you uh, read and obey and believe Scripture. But that is a true thing. It will keep you from bad things. You will be warned about um, grievous sexual sin. You'll be warned about idolatry. You'll be warned, warned about uh, false teaching and false things said about God and His Word and, and Christ and salvation. Uh, you'll be warned against uh, laziness. You'll be warned against uh, fighting unnecessarily with people and running your mouth and getting beat up for it and all kinds of things. I mean, we could go on and on. And that's what God's Word is doing. It's, it's because of verses 7 through 9 and now it can warn you. It can warn you reliably. You can trust it to lead you in the right direction and lead you away from evil things. And he adds here, in keeping them there is great reward. And he's probably thinking... Because remember, he's, he's, he's likely talking about Moses's. well, we're, we're quite sure he's talking about Moses's. at least he's talking about Moses' five books. And he's saying, he's probably thinking of, in uh, those texts, there are, Moses lays out the blessings and the cursings that Israel would experience if they, they'd receive blessings if they obeyed God's word, and they'd receive curses if they didn't obey God's word. And he's probably thinking back that, listen, if you obey it, you... And the nation will experience great reward. So, so that's another reason to, to hold fast to it and to obey it. And keeping them there is great reward. Uh, reward now here, and I believe in this life, and in the, in the mere keeping of it, as we've already seen, because it says it's sure, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, leads you in the right ways. There's, there's temporary re- reward by just the sheer obeying and keeping of God's word here in this life. But there's also, as the rest of Scripture shows us, that there is reward in the future as well, great reward in the future for keeping God's Word. Um, Look here now at verse 12. He kind of switches, he doesn't switch uh, gears completely. This is all related, but he says, Who can discern his errors? Right? Why Why is he thinking about this? Why is he all of a sudden turned to, Praying now to the Lord, who can discern his errors? Or just asking this rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no one ultimately. And that the word at some level here is having a, an exposing ministry in the life of, of David likely here. Who can discern his errors? Right? And what, what does the word of God do? It's perfect. It revives the soul. It turns the soul. It makes wise and simple. It's, here it seems to be it, there, there's an exposing ministry here. Um, and what, what David wants is he wants two things. First thing is he wants, he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. That's a legal term. He wants to be declared guiltless or innocent in the court of law from hidden faults. Lord, please don't hold me accountable for the sins that I'm not even aware of. Okay? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Um, let's see here. Anything I want to say about that? Yeah, just the idea here is simply he is asking to be declared innocent in like a court of law setting from the hidden, his hidden faults. So he knows he has sins he can't see. He knows he has blind spots. And he's asking for God's mercy to declare him innocent, not because he actually is in practice. These, these are hidden faults, right? These are actual faults. But that the Lord would have mercy on him and declare him righteous, declare him innocent from these 
hidden faults, which, of course, we experience and we realize uh, in, in now in the new covenant in Christ being justified, declared righteous, declared innocence from all faults, including hidden faults as, as well. We, Christ's redemption is, is um, comprehensive. Um, okay, next, next question, or next request he makes of God. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. What are these presumptuous sins? This is the word here uh, for premeditated sins, high-handed sins. Um, quoting one commentator, he says, presumptuous sins are sins committed in arrogant disregard of divine commands. These, when repeated, come to have a dominion and thus enslave a person. Unlike hidden faults, which are known by, only by God and by the sinner, these sins are open acts of rebellion known to all society. So he wants deliverance from this kind of presumptuous sins. He wants to be guarded from these open, flagrant, public sins. And he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now just think for a moment of the nature and the content of that request. What does that sound like in the New Testament? Justification, but I'm thinking even of a prayer in the New Testament. Keep me back. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. How does Jesus tell us to pray? One of the things that we should ask for in what we ask for, we, we, Matthew 6, we worship God, we hallowed, hallow His name, we ask that His kingdom would become would come. We ask that uh, he would give us this day our daily bread, provide for us. When you get to the end of the prayer, you can't forget a very important piece. Lead us not into temptation. Right? I, I, that is such a comforting verse because what it means is that none of us, no believer, no disciple of Jesus, is, has become so mature in their faith that they're not in need at every moment of God's guiding hand leading them not into temptation. And here, David's making a similar kind of prayer, asking that God himself would keep him from presumptuous sins. The saints from, from the Old Testament into the New Testament know their dependence upon God to not be led into sin. And I think this is something that we need to recapture. We can't think that we are so mature in the faith or have grown so much that we are not in need at every moment of God's sustaining grace and keeping us from sin, keeping us from temptation, keeping us from presumptuous sin. And this should be part of our prayer life. Finally, uh, David ends, and we'll end here because we've got to get into Psalm 22 or you guys are going to really get mad at me. But um, he ends this way. He says, let the words of my mouth... Now he's... He's thinking about the nature of the Word of God, I believe, that he's talked about in verses 9 through, 7 through 9. And he, he, he's now thinking, okay, that, that describes those, the law of the Lord describes God's will. 
Therefore, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In other words, let those things, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. In other words, let them be in accordance with that law I just described in verses 7 through 9. And he calls God his rock and his redeemer. Of course, he couldn't call God his rock or his redeemer unless God had given him a reliable, trustworthy, true word like the one he describes in verses 7 through 9. Um, so Proverbs chapter 30. The word rock is not used here, but the idea of rock is, is one of refuge. You get to a, a rock that protects you, that you can hold on to. It's a refuge. And Psalm 30, or Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. There, immediately after talking about the, the purity and the integrity of the Word of God, he then goes on to talk about God being a shield to those who take refuge in him. You can't take refuge in a God whose Word is not utterly trustworthy. Okay? So David here, calling God his rock and his redeemer, that's entirely rooted in this truth about who God is and what his Word is like. God cannot be your shield, he cannot be your rock, he cannot be your redeemer, unless he's given you a word that's utterly trustworthy, and that's the case here. All right, I'm going to close there so that we can move on to Psalm 22. This is two and a half weeks in Psalm 19. I mean, it is worthy of that kind of time, and probably more so. But uh, any last questions or comments about Psalm 19 before we move on to Psalm 22? Yes, Lucia. I have a general question on when we see the Psalms quoted in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, in verse 4, uh, we're talking, like, so the context of Psalm 19, we're talking about general revelation. Yeah. But in Romans 10, I think Paul applies it to the special revelation the gospel is given back to the Gentiles. So when we look at those or see those things, should we read both of them in the context of where they are or as now with the New Testament? Yeah, Paul's use here in Romans 10 is actually a really challenging uh, way of using it. Um, so it's, so uh, just to go back to your uh, question, um, assume whenever a, a person is using uh, Old Testament text in the New Testament, Paul here, for example, all throughout Romans, he uh, reflects back on multiple Old Testament texts. And the New Testament as a whole is making strong use of the Old Testament at every turn, sometimes just alluding to it, sometimes quoting it exactly. And here's a case where Paul's quoting Psalm 19. The first thing you need to do is assume that whatever they're doing, they're doing it appropriately. I don't think it's helpful to assume that, oh, Paul's an apostle, therefore he can take liberty with the Old Testament that I cannot take. He has a way of, um, he, can kind of, he doesn't have to apply sound hermeneutics because he's an apostle and God is telling him exactly what to say and he can just, he can use text to prove things, he can use text slightly out of context, but that's okay 
because he's an inspired apostle. I, some, and some will argue that way. I don't think that's a helpful way to argue. I think that leads you into trouble. You've got a lot of questions you need to ask at, at that point, and, and I think it throws the integrity of Scripture into question. So I think you need to first assume that whatever Paul is doing, even if you don't first understand it, he's using sound, legitimate hermeneutics or interpretational principles to uh, use that text in the way he's using it. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. That's, you gotta, you got you to gotta grasp onto that first and foremost whenever you're reading the New Testament, okay? Let's look in verse 14. It says, How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Referring now to uh, Christ. Uh, How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they are, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Who? Well, probably he's referring to the Jews here. Um, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard uh, from us? So Paul's preaching the gospel. Not everybody's believing. The Jews aren't all believing, um, especially. Not all the Gentiles are, but I think here in the context he's referring to the Jews, which is why he'll go on to say chapter 11, but that doesn't mean God has forsaken his people because there's going to be a large ingathering of Jews uh, in the end, ethnic Jews, are, there's going to be a huge, huge gathering of Jews whom God will bring into Christ uh, towards the end of, of, of history. But nevertheless, they're currently unbelieving. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. So here he quotes Psalm 19. For their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Uh, originally, that text said uh, was ref- clearly referenced, referencing in Psalm 19, uh, general of revelation. Right, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the, the skies above declare His handiwork. Talking about the sun, the stars, the moon, and all that stuff, displaying the glory of God. Verse four, Psalm 19. Their voice, referring to the stars and all that, goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Here, it seems as though David is saying. That he's using, he's taking that, and now he's applying it to the gospel going out into all the world. So what do you do with this? Well, there's a few options. Let's see what he says after this. But I asked, did, not, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Uh, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Isaiah is so bold to say. Okay. What do I think, David, or what do I think Paul is doing here? Uh, first, I think it's challenging. But one option is that he is, he is using Psalm 19 in a way that is legitimate with the Jews or with anybody else he's talking to because on the one hand, yes, all people have heard. Namely, all people have heard general revelation. And the special revelation that is going out, namely the gospel, that is going out to all the earth, and this is something that I said, I think, two weeks ago, I wanted to make clear. That gospel that's going out into all the earth it corresponds perfectly with general revelation. There's no conflict with the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection with what God reveals about himself in creation. And I think I even gave you myself as an example or an illustration. When I first came to Christ, it just made sense to me that the God who created, that the God that I see here in creation would be so good as to send his son to save us. It just made, this just totally makes sense, okay? 
And so there, it could be that he's using it in that way, that there is a correspondence both between that gospel and that general revelation. So in the sense that whoever hears it, Jews, if he's talking about Jews here specifically, yes, they have heard. They have heard. They, they do know God. And there's a correspondence between the gospel and, and, and when he says 17, verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, it could also be the case that he is using this now. He's using that. So in its original context, refers to general revelation. And now he's applying it now to the, the fulfilling of the, what you see in general revelation in terms of its... So general revelation, I prefer the word universal. It's universal to all people at all times and all places under all circumstances. Now he's taking that concept and now that the gospel has come, there is now a, a, a plan of God to, to do what he's done with general revelation to now do with what he's done with special revelation and to send it out into all the world so that all people in all places at all times under all circumstances will have the gospel. 